Good morning, comrades, and uh, welcome to another episode of uh, Workers' Power here on uh, 4 Z. I'm your host, uh, Bill. Uh, Jackson will be joining me very, very soon. All right, on to today's show. In the second half of the show, we will be talking to uh, Workers' Power regular Jeff Ricketts uh, from the Brisbane Labor History Association who, in the lead-up to the International Working Women's Day, we're going to be, uh, which is next week, by the way, um, yeah, I've got uh, some great guests uh, lined up, and uh, yes, that's next Tuesday, March 8th every year, is International Working Women's Day. But today we'll be talking about the campaign of the Telephonist Union in the uh, 70s and 80s. Um, you know, around about the time where, where they were with the the, uh, the greatest workforce Australia has ever known, the uh, Postmaster General, um, and then uh, it split off into telecom. Not many know that. The Telstra used to be part of the post office. Um, so uh, before that, we'll, we'll also have uh, plenty of uh, workers' action. And, of course, at the end of the show, we will have the world-famous uh, Scallywag of the Week. Uh, so uh, that's open at the moment. Uh, we haven't uh, finalised it. So uh, if you've got a recommendation uh, for Scallywag of the Week, uh, bearing in mind that Scott Morrison is exempt from the award because... Uh, no one else would get a run in because he's just such a great scallywag. Um, yeah, if you if you've got a suggestion, please. Or if you if if you're a subscriber and you want a, a, a request a song, uh, SMS to o four two o six two six seven double three. That's o four two o six two six seven double three, and we'll be sure to include that in our uh, consideration. Okay, well, first off, uh, we we will head on to uh, some. Uh, we will head to, into some First Nations workers action. All right, so uh, floods uh, see Indigenous community evacuated, and uh, the the main reason I wanted to uh, report this story is the the courier Curry Mail, not the courier Curry Mail, has been cut off. The Indigenous community of Cabbage Tree Island on the New South Wales far north coast has been evacuated hours after it was announced that disaster assistance has been extended for those affected across southeast Queensland. The flood emergency continues to wreak havoc for residents of northern New South Wales and Queensland. The major flooding is responsible for dangerous conditions from Harvey Bay to the Gold Coast and west to Toowoomba, with 17 local government areas being activated uh, for disaster assistance to help with the damages. Among those impacted is the Indigenous news platform Career Mail, which acts as a major news source for the First Nations popularity population. General Manager of Courier, Courier Mail. See, how I'm, I'm nearly making that error there, comrades, but I'll, 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 I'll work to do better. The Courier Mail, Naomi Moran, told NITV News that the floods had inundated the town and community with the mail's headquarters being hit severely. The Lismore region of the far north coast has been hit with a once-in-a-hundred-year flood. Uh, we'll be discussing more on that later. 
the waters have already exceeded the levels seen in the 1954 and 2017 floods and are still rising. So we're expecting this region to hit quite severely this time around and it's absolutely devastating. It's such a tragedy already, Ms Moran said. Unfortunately, today was the first day, which is yesterday this was reported, what would have been our production week. So unfortunately, we may for the first time in our 30-year history need to make a decision around whether we have the capacity or the safety to print next week's edition. Meanwhile, the community of Cabbage Tree Island was uh, yesterday morning ordered to evacuate with families, elders and children forced to seek safety off the island. Like most of uh, southeast Queensland, other areas in far north New South Wales are also on high alert, including Lismore, Casino, Nimbin and Kyogle. Ms Moran said she had concerns about the courier mail's inability to feed news to the community given the circumstances, but noted they will remain active on social media platforms to ensure they can share as much information and ongoing updates as possible. Unfortunately, the flooding will affect our online capacities and our podcasts as well. We'd like people to keep going to our Facebook page where we'll where we will provide updates so they can share that information so people can know the situation we are in, in, she said. We want people to contact us with their stories as well because we still have a responsibility to report on issues happening to our people no matter where they are from. The Minister for uh, Emergency Management and National Recovery and Resilience, uh, Senator Bridget McKenzie, this morning, or yesterday morning, praised the hard work of emergency service workers and urged all those in affected areas to remain safe by following public orders, avoiding high-risk areas, staying home where necessary and reaching out for help if the situations become too dire. The unprecedented unprecedented conditions are expected to last several more days so uh yeah it's, it's impacting those uh south of uh, just south of the border um as uh, was reported uh, lismore casino nimbin kyogle um are pretty much getting smashed like uh, us up here in uh, mianjin did over the last oh, ne- nearly a week um, so since I arrived back in Mianjin on Thursday, it, it, it until this morning it had just teamed down. Um, so um, I'm hoping to have a little chat with uh, Jackson uh, uh, about that later on in the uh, later on in this hour. So stick around for that because I think it's going to turn into a rant, comrade. So uh, I know you will like it when I uh, let a bit of steam off. So uh, be sure to stay tuned for that. Okay, on to our next story in our, uh, for First Nations uh, Workers Action. We've got uh, calls for a tougher COVID safety measures after a WA prison unrest. This is another um, story that we've uh, found in the NITV News, which is a fantastic source uh, for um, news um, for our First Nations comrades and, and on them. Calls... Are are mounting for tougher COVID safety measures after a prison guard tested positive and spread COVID to, 
19 to inmates, prompting a riot at a West Australian prison. According to the WA Department of Justice, two inmates and five staff at the privately run Acacia Prison have tested positive for COVID-19. The positive inmates remain in lockdown and the five staff are isolating at home. On Sunday afternoon, a riot broke out at the prison, 50 kilometres east of Perth, which houses around 1,500 inmates, the most in the Southern Hemisphere. Indigenous prisoner advocate and Noongar man Mervyn Eads had told NITV News that the riot was caused because officers were not following correct COVID-19 safety protocols. It's been at boiling point for a long time, said Mr Eads. COVID is why the boys have kicked up. The boys in Acacia are very worried about the COVID situation. They're taking them out of the units, the people are that are positive and not rat-testing the rest. They are all close contacts. It's like living in the same house. So far, Acacia Prison is the only prison in the state to record a case of the virus. However, only 11.7% of prisoners have received all three vaccine doses. Mr Eads uh, said Circar Australia, the company that operates Acacia, should be held accountable for the outbreak. There's going to be ownership on the corrective services and... Or there's got to be ownership on the corrective services and and Circar, he said. Why don't they do rat tests on every officer every day of the week? Test them. They took it into the prison. They gave it to the prisoners because the boys aren't going anywhere and mixing in society. They're locked up. So, uh, yes, um, the department is investigating uh, the, the riot. Um, so, in a statement uh, on Monday, the Department of Justice said it was still investigating the cause of the riot, which saw at least 100 inmates involved with a small coyote engaging in unruly behaviour. According to the department, the riot started around 4pm and was under control by 9.45 after specialist staff from corrective services, including WA police, had breached the prison. Special operation groups officers were deployed after attempts to negotiate with the prisoners were unsuccessful, they said. At the peak of the incident, a group of prisoners broke away and moved to the industries area of another block within the prison, lighting fires and causing further damage. It is estimated 100 prisoners refused to comply with directions from staff at some point during the disturbance. The department said three staff presented to hospitals with minor injuries while one prisoner was taken to hospital hospital after an unrelated medical episode uh well the main yes uh, so uh yeah that's a interesting story and, and we reported on similar stories here on the east coast uh you know a few months ago so um wa are you know because of their the you know the tyranny of distance uh they're a a, a, a little bit uh I don't want to use the phrase behind, but 
Um, yes, they're, 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 um, they're feeling the impacts of COVID-19 right now and uh, um, workers in uh, prisoners are standing up and fighting back and, uh, and saying that um, this is not good enough. And uh, look, uh, uh, there's, there's one particular word in there that just says it all to me, Circo. Um, profit in prisons should not be and uh, the, these are the um, sort of results of that and I, I know it has it to guess that uh, the majority of ones that we've been reporting on um, over the last uh, you know couple of years have been these uh, privately run prisons so well some would argue uh, I know a lot here at Workers Power do that we shouldn't have prisons, but we definitely should not have prisons run for profit because we get things like this where staff feel, you know, workers feel obligated to go into work um, and uh, and uh, spread spread the disease. Um, so, yeah, if, uh, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll try and keep you up to date if there's anything further that happens in that area. Okay, let's get into some uh, workers' action. And uh, uh, th- th- this story came from the RTBU New South Wales. Now, uh, at, and I think that this is uh, this was the the last update that we we got uh, from uh, them. So, uh, New South Wales a government drops its case in Fair Work Commission after union demands to see the risk assessment. The New South Wales government has spectacularly dropped all its claims against the rail, tram and bus union in the Fair Work Commission after the union requested to see a copy of the risk assessment used to justify shutting down the rail network on Monday. That's last Monday. The New South Wales government had dragged the RTBU into the Fair Work Commission late last week prior to to its shutting down the rail network in attempt to stop workers from taking low-level protected industrial action that would have impacted management rather than commuters. The protected industrial action is a response to the New South Wales government refusal to listen to workers' concerns as part of a current enterprise agreement negotiation. Running a safe rail network is our number one concern. So, of course, we asked the New South Wales government to show us the risk assessment it supposedly used to justify its decision to shut down our trains on Monday. If there's a safety issue, we need to know about it. We would never do anything that would put the safety of the network at risk, Mr. Clausens said. The risk assessment has been forthcoming but just moments after we issued a subpoena for it the new south wales government dropped all of its claims against the union in the fair work commission mr clarsons said uh, the new south wales government focus should now be on ensuring trains can run while also addressing the safety and employment concerns workers have been raising for many months the new south wales government's dummy smith spit might be behind us now but the reason we're in this situation still remains the new south wales government is refusing to deliver an enterprise agreement that enshrines basic safety and employment conditions for all for railway workers and commuters 
We've been taking protected industrial action for months because the New South Wales government has stubbornly refused to deliver on our very basic asks as part of negotiations. If you can shut down a railway on a whim, surely you can deliver some very basic conditions in an enterprise agreement that will ensure worker and commuter safety. The New South Wales government should be focused on fixing the mess it's made. We need to see workers' concerns addressed and commuters get their trains back on track. Among the key sticking points in the current enterprise agreement negotiations are privatisations. Workers want a commitment that no train services or lines will be lost in the event of privatisation. Safety claims. Workers want a guarantee that any changes to our services will leave them as safe or safer. Hygiene. Workers want a commitment to maintain the existing levels of hygiene using good full-time jobs. They sound like uh, very, very um, important uh, points uh, that they're raising, you know, privatisations and you know, that they don't want uh, lines to be closed and safety, hygiene. It's not always all about money, comrades. It's, uh, uh, you know, sometimes workers, you know, well, quite often in, in current uh, negotiating, uh, um, in the negotiating cycle, is the, we, we've even reported on, on um, wage rates of 2.5%, which is, is nothing. It's not. It doesn't even compare with the with the with inflation. So um, workers are going backwards in that 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 regard. But they're winning key concessions uh, from the bosses um, and uh, the um, rail and you know the the rail and tram uh, workers, um, rail and train workers. Um, they they've got a lot of priorities more than the more than their hip pocket and uh, some of those are looking after the safety of the community and services to the community um, so good on them um, you know uh, stand strong um, they're basically um, still in the middle of industrial action um, and, and negotiations so uh we always have to say, one day longer, one day stronger, comrades. Um, stick with it, hold true, and um, yes, we will keep um, we will keep workers informed of of their struggle um, down in New South Wales. All right, so fantastic to have Jackson uh, make it in. So uh, I've got here to uh, discuss uh, floods and. Uh, mm. Uh, road closures. Now that affected you. Yes, it certainly did. Um, I I take I use my GPS to get everywhere. Uh, I don't actually know what the roads are like, so I've got to like um, trust my GPS to know what's going on. Uh, and it failed me this time. Took me right into flood water, so I had to turn around and take a long route round. Turns out everyone was taking that route, so the roads were chock-a-block, and I arrived 40 minutes late. <laughs> do, you, do you think that the communication could have been a little bit better, but, you know, perhaps uh, providing more links to, to, to the road closures? Uh, well, there is a government website which is more comprehensive and does actual, like, navigation, like, routing for to, like, get 
get you to somewhere. The problem is the website sucks. At least it sucks on mobile. I tried to load it up and get a route, but like even when I tried to move the map on my phone, it just took 30 seconds for even that simple action yeah well um my, my uh, i've had a um a bit of an ordeal on the roads anyhow this morning what I, what i did is i i had a look at that that uh website when i was at home and i i, I kind of admitted de- defeat and um left at the crack of dawn and hmm. I, I essentially uh, for those that don't know um I'm, I'm i live out at ipswich and uh 4305 represent of course and um I ended up driving all the way to Logan. So I, as I was talking <laughs> to you during the break, I drove it for about 40 minutes and I was still no closer to the city. So the mm. the other big impact on the roads has been potholes. Oh, yeah, because right? of the rain. Because of the rain. Yeah. Now, um, how, do, how do I tell this story? Well, there, I had a comrade who, who, who was in a, in a bit of um, a bother. Um, they were... Uh, may, uh, uh, a bit of anxiety on um, Sunday night with with the rain absolutely pouring down. Um, they've got a, a they've got a, they're a person with a, um, a disability, and and um, so I, I I bit the bullet and I, I went out to to go and just check that they were all, all right. It was like a welfare check. Guess who ended up needing the welfare check? Oh, no. Yeah, um, I couldn't get back home. I could get out of Ipswich, but I couldn't get back into Ipswich. Mm. And whilst I was driving around, I encountered some um, nasty potholes. Jeez, I wasn't going quick. I was only, you know, doing the the measured speed limit. I swear swear it was doing (laughs) about 60 kilometres an hour. I hit a pothole. And I ended up with two flat tyres. Oh, ouch. Not one. One you can kind of deal with. Yeah, if you got the tyre in yeah, your boot, Yeah, just get the good, spare off you go. Yeah. Two. Oh. In the end, oh, you know, and, and of course the... Um, the 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 roadside assistance uh, people were just so busy and oh, yeah. and um, in the end I got to about uh, I think it was about uh, one in the morning um, so I'd been on the side of the road for a couple of hours I ended up starting to uh, leg it home I left oh, the car okay. there and I was about ten kilometres from home and I started to leg it and. Uh, uh, I got a full drive. A guy with a full drive coming. Hey, hey, you know another worker showing some <laughs> solidarity and oh, uh, yeah. and, and um, yeah, dro- dropped me off really close to my home. So what would have probably been an hour and a half, two hour walk um, in the middle of the night whilst it's raining. You know, another worker came to my aid, which is you know fantastic. But. Uh, um, you, you, some would say I shouldn't have, you know, especially uh, my partner said I shouldn't have been in that situation to begin with. But look, uh, you know, um, standing in solidarity and, and, you know, and helping out our co-workers who, who need the assistance, just um, that that feeling of, uh, of having to help someone just overwhelmed me. So I had to go out there and help them out. 
Yeah, it's a, it's very. This is a very symbolic story of mutual aid. I think you uh, went out to help someone, and then you ha- needed help yourself, and you were able to get that help from another worker who was able to give it. And if we, and it's all about creating networks like that where people can help each other. That's right. That's right. So, some of the other impacts have, have been, um, you know, the bus and train networks are down, um, mm. not working. Um, retail workers have been impacted. Yeah, definitely. You know, so not only are they, they they've been dealing with um, uh, what 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 do they call it? Uh, uh, hoarding. <laughs> um, yeah. You know, uh, but also like um, I- Ipswich, um, the 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 one the coals in the main centre. And the main main um, part of the city, it, it it it'll be closed for another day or two. Mm. Um, so uh, you know, there, there, there's been a few of those around, and uh, um, and then you know the the expectations of bosses on workers. Oh, you're still coming in. We've all seen that meme coming in <laughs> where where the, the place is flooded, but the boss says um, you're still coming in, right? <laughs> and also uh, their student workers have been impacted and teachers the schools have been closed so you know like uh well, I just, just quietly i only just got rid of them and now they're back at home again <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, so but uh, but yeah. you know they they'll be keen to get back into learning again you know so it was the right thing to do you know like the my my um my kids school one of the roads, uh, like the school was high and dry and all fine and, and, and uh, my kids pre- could, would have been able to get to school, but that's on the um, eastern side. Anyone on the western side of the school, the one road to the school was blocked. You can't get in. Oh. So half the, half the school can't get in and, and then you get people taking risks and things like that. So um, it, it was the right decision again. So... Um, all all the um, schools are, are closed again today, and uh, um, uh, uh, so yeah. And now I, I, I've put here, it's a big, big, bold statement, but um, you know I, I think we stand by it here on Workers Power. A lot of these, um, a, a lot of, of this. Now it used to be once in a generation, flooding. Yeah. Well, hang on a minute. I, I've lived at Ipswich for eleven years now, and we've been through three of the things. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't lived three lifetimes. I can tell you what, comrades. Um, so the the this impact is 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 becoming much more profound, um, reaching into different areas. As I reported earlier, um, it, it's it's got got into the far north of uh, New South Wales, who are getting smashed as we speak. So um, yeah, it, it's uh, highlighting the um, the impacts of climate change um, on us um, and. Uh, uh, and our way of life. So uh, buckle up. Um, if we can't get governments uh, to uh, uh, take a climate change serious, buckle up, we're in for more of this. Yeah. And while it is true that uh, Brisbane has been flooding for ages, I mean, it's on a river, it's it's going to flood. Uh, what we're seeing here is it happening more frequently and more harshly. Uh, so why, while this, I don't know if this is as harsh as the 2011 floods, it is only um, 10 years afterwards, whereas like the next biggest one before 2011 would have been 1975, I believe. Yeah. 74. 74? Okay, yeah. Yeah, it was the big one. Um, Right, so uh, we've got a... uh, uh, Oh, 
We wanted to talk about the community win. Oh, yes, let's go. All right, so I'm just um, um, ad-libbing here, but um, the the main gist of it is, is uh, Ramondas abandoned plans to build a waste-to-energy incinerator at Swanbank. Hell yeah. That's great. Now, um, uh, for those that don't know, this, this, uh, you know, proposed uh, plastic power Pla- burning plastic for power generator was uh, was to be built within two kilometres of my home, and and my kids need need nice clean air to to, to live. And um, I was part of community campaigning, but uh, uh, very very much supported by the community, different community groups, um, and and so Ramondas have, have backed down, and, and and they've said that they're not going to um, build at Swanbank. That doesn't mean that it's out of the picture for them here in Queensland. It'll just be to another community. Mm. Now, um, as, as, as a comrade and, and someone who loves solidarity, uh, whatever community it goes to, that could be, you know, up the coast, west, I'll be standing in solidarity. I'll be out there on the, on the, on the lines uh, with them wherever I can uh, because we just don't want this stupid thing anywhere in, in our community. Absolutely. And so this is really a community-driven win. There was community groups, you know, like uh, community groups were f- who were already formed and made this as their, their number one thing that they active. Uh, they, they activated. Uh, there was new groups that, that formed up, you know, the IVIS group and... Uh, I'd be disappointed. We'll have to find another reason to use the, uh, <laughs> the IVIS costume. That's fantastic. Um, so it really, truly was a community-driven um, uh, uh, campaign. Of course, the politicians jump on the bandwagon um, <laughs> overnight, and, um, and you know, and, and do it, congratulating each other, and then mm. putting one sentence about the community campaign. Well, once again, I'm going to say it again: it was a community campaign um, that uh, that um, got Ramondas to change their mind. You know. The, um, and um, buckle to to the pressure of the community and realise that we just don't want your crappy um, burning for plastic for power operation in our communities. Yeah, we don't need more toxins in our air and we don't need an incentive for the waste that our society creates, like millions of tons of uh, the stuff which we need to be creating less waste and mm. not burning it. That's right. That's right. We, you know, there's just so many examples of, uh, um, yeah, w- within what we do, but it's mainly big business mm. that uh, need need to change, and um, the the pressure needs to be put onto onto them. You know, because they're the they're the the the, the main uh, producers of waste. Um, yeah, I'm not producing yeah, any mean, other than other than what comes out of out of me. I'm, it, I only get waste from the, you know, from from the big corporations. You yeah, know? absolutely. Like, uh, and even if even if you like don't think, I mean, if, even if you ugh, sorry, when you compare the amount of plastic waste that actually ends up on the consumer end of things, if you look at the plastic waste that is used like everywhere before that, like getting stuff to the store, there is a huge huge amount of plastic waste that just like throwing out a heap every day uh, just for no reason when you could be using other less um less permanent forms of packaging 
for this like small little thing yeah i think the great example is how this, the, the supermarket industry you know put cling wrap around bananas yeah you know crazy another another one i, I don't know if this has changed because i haven't worked in retail in a couple of years but the all the organic produce it's all wrapped in plastic. <laughs> yeah. It really is, yeah. Yeah, because well, I mean, if it's organic, it has no preservatives, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and, but, but I think that the, from the industry itself, they say that uh, they wrap it in plastic to, to stop any preservatives or any, any products that... Oh. Yeah. Okay. They keep it... Right. Se- yeah, that's, that's <laughs> their argument that they use. Uh, you know, so, uh, you yeah, know, uh, look, uh, just quietly, um, I think that um, organic... Um, although we, we we should be using you know many many of these things that uh, it's um, w- if all produce was to you know say the governments were to start enforcing all organics well and 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 we'd um, we'd soon starve just about you know we you know food would be unattainable for the working class it's uh, yeah yes. Uh, And welcome back to uh, Workers' Power here on 4ZZZ, where you're with Bill. And Jackson. All right, well, uh, yeah, first Tuesday of the month, and we're on time this month. We, we've uh, <laughs> um, we've got Jeff joining us. Welcome, Jeff. Thanks, Bill. Uh, great, great to have you here, and I'm um, really, really excited uh, to, to, to hear about... Uh, um, the 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 telephonist of the seventies and eighties who were originally now you know I was a postman don't you and I, I hold yes I believe you were a postman yeah and I hold the postmaster general in quite high <laughs> regard it was uh, in in many many ways the post office was uh, fundamental to to our society as a whole you know um, not only you know was it your local bank oh you got your mail and and mail was a big thing before uh, you know before faxes and all things like that and. Uh, um, the, the, not only that, uh, you know, it was your bank, uh, you know, your mail, um, you know, uh, you, your local news. I'm sure a lot of the people got your local news. But it also, uh, not many people know this, that it also had the telephone exchanges. So, um, yeah, and the, the, the telephonists were, were a large part of the, the workforce. So, uh, but w- what was the job of a telephonist? Yeah, so um, many of your listeners may never have heard of the term telephonist. So these were... um, So back in the day, um, all telephone calls... um, Of course, this is way before digital and mobile. um, All telephone calls on landlines went through telephone exchanges. So if you wanted to call up someone on the telephone, you would ring the exchange... Um, and you would give them the, the, the number or the details of the person you're wanting to contact or the business, and they would connect you through. So that was the, the primary kind of switching function, they called it, of telephony from its, um, from its inception in the in 1880s right through um, until automi- automi- automation started to kind of take over um, certain aspects of that function. So the basic idea was that the, the telephone exchange operators or telephonists, as they were known, were the ones who connected your call, and that was either local calls or long distance or even overseas calls. So they were the ones responsible for that. Um, 
And as part of their job in the old manual days, um, they would have to record the duration of the call and also the location of the of the call where it was um, coming from and going to. And from that docket that they would fill out in the exchange, a calculation would be made as to the cost of the call. So they had to uh, transfer the calls and they also had to keep that kind of data about the duration and the, and the location, which was used as part of a formula to work out cost. Um, but other functions developed over time. There was a f what they called the phonogram division, um, which was a branch of telephony in which operators would record messages um, and then they would ring, they would phone through the message to uh, another exchange, a local exchange, where the message would be printed onto pieces of paper and hand delivered by postal assistants. Um, people may have heard of the, um, the concept of the telegram. So the phonogram operators were the ones who facilitated that process. So they, you would ring up the exchange, they would take down your message, they would phone through the message to another exchange, it would be written on a piece of paper and then hand delivered to the, to the household. Um, they would also deliver wake-up calls and reminder calls. So if you, were, if you had to get to work by six o'clock in the morning, um, you could ring the telephone exchange the night before and give them a message and um, they would make sure that they would ring you um, to wake you up in time to get to work. So they did those, all those kinds of things as well. In rural areas, um, as you said, Bill, you know, the, the, the telephone exchanges and the postal service as a whole was incredibly important. And in rural areas, they really came into their own during um, natural disasters and emergencies because the telephone exchange and the people who operated it became the hub of communications to put people in touch with emergency services. Um, so they had quite a lot of functions, but the core one was to do with uh, transferring calls and connecting people through the telephone network. Um, automation of the local calls began as early as the 1910s and by the 1950s, uh, most local calls were being automated. Um, which uh, concentrated the telephonists into um, what was known as the, the trunk lines. So the trunk lines were the, um, the telephone exchanges connecting um, long distance locations. So they were generally in the big regional centres and in the capital cities. Um, <coughs> and if you wanted to make a long distance or overseas call, you would be transferred to a, a trunk exchange, say in Rockhampton or Brisbane, and you would give them the details and they would ring um, another trunk exchange closest to the, um, the person you were trying to call and you would be connected and again they would have to keep a record of the duration of the call and so on. Um, and these phone calls were known as trunk calls. People would remember the old term trunk calls and so um, they became concentrated in that area of the network after the local calls were automated. Um, and they continued, you know, right into the into the 1980s to be a, a really important part of services. I, I vaguely remember having to make a trunk call, and you call through to an operator, and then they they would put you through. Yeah, so that's you, right. I was born '73, so yeah, yeah, must have been in play till about the mid '80s. Yeah, the basically um, f full automation of the of the system was more or less complete by the end of the '80s. Um, but the automation of the of the trunk lines, the long distance calls, um, was 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 had started in the 1950s and really picked up steam in the 1970s. Listeners might be familiar with the um, uh, the telephone exchanges from watching American movies. Invariably, in, a, in an American movie from the 40s or 50s or 60s, 
um, the, the, the lead would ring up to make a phone call he would ring up and say operator put me through to blah blah mm. so that those operators who are always faceless people in the movies were actually real people um, and in, in Australia they were called telephonists so who, who were the telephonists well apart from the very early days of the industry in the 1880s most telephonists were women um, and until because they were part of the public service um, it was as you said the postmaster general's department for most of its life which was a Commonwealth Government Department. Until 1966, uh, women had to resign from the public service when they got married. Um, it was known as the marriage bar, and, and that was repealed in 1966. Um, but prior to 1966, many married women actually did work for long periods in the exchanges. They, they had to resign their permanent positions, but they actually worked for in some cases many years as uh, as temporaries um, so it was predominantly a female industry for most of the industry's history and at the high point of manual telephony in Australia in the mid 50s um, there were about 10,000 telephonists and monitors and supervisors in the telephone exchanges across Australia so it was a very significant employer of female labour yeah, that's a that's a big when when we're talking the seventies and uh, and the like, ten thousand workers is is a, is a big chunk of uh, union un, the unions, you know. So that's right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, so did the telephonists have a union? What was it like? Yeah, they they did. So they actually f <coughs> in the early days they um they formed a few unions. Um, the first known union of telephonists was called the New South Wales Telephone Exchange Association, which was formed in Sydney in 1903. Um, it didn't last long and then in 1907, four years later, female telephonists in Sydney in the main exchange formed the Women's Telephone Attendance Association and that um, development was directly in response to supervisory bullying and inhumane uh, work practices, the intensity of the labour process. Um, they, they actually referred to it as um, as sweating or, or slavery and such was the uh, intensity that uh, it prompted them to form a union an all-female union in 1907. Uh, the first uh, a national union uh, for the telephonists was founded in Melbourne in 1914 and it eventually came to be known as the Australian Telephone and Phonogram Officers Association. Um, so it, it began in you know in, in fairly in a fairly uh, stirring fashion uh, with, with workers organising against oppression in the workplace. Um, but by the 50s and 60s, the ATPOA was ver very much a tame cat uh, organisation. It was dominated by anti-militant careerists in the supervisory ranks. And um, one, one telephonist that I interviewed um, some years ago, who later became a very prominent figure as the Federal Secretary of the Union, a woman by the name of Sylvia Hall. Uh, she described the union in those days in the 50s and 60s as more like a knitting circle. <laughs> so uh, that, that was the way it was back then. Uh, so you had um, a, a union that was, a, it was an association, uh, didn't have any, any oomph at all, very much was allied to 
to the employer, the Postmaster General's department, didn't didn't rock the boat. Um, was always keen to, to to make agreements with them and so on. Um, sounds a bit like a particular union that we know of in the retail industry today. <laughs> that the union that shall not be named. That's the <laughs> well, it's the SDA. We're talking about the SDA. <laughs> <laughs> so. Um, uh, in the 1970s, uh, many organisations representing you know, service workers abandoned the old-style association model and started behaving more like industrial unions. Were the telephonists part of this transfa- transformation and what factors led to this? Yeah, they certainly were. So, as I said, you know, there was, it, they were a fairly mild uh, meek bunch in the 50s and 60s, but um, there was this... Uh, pretty much a, a global transformation of white collar um, and particularly public service unions in the, in the 1970s and into the 80s. And the telephonists union and the telephonists themselves were very much a part of that uh, shift into a more militant, industrial orientated uh, union approach to, um, to its activities. And I think we can point to a few factors that, that led to that. Uh, one, and of course probably the major one in, in some respects, was the general, general leftward shift in society um, engendered by the youth revolt against the Vietnam War and the rise of women's and gay liberation movements. Um, to give you a, um, a sense of this transformation at a personal level, um, Joyce Williams, who was one of the unions, um, who, who became the union's um, state secretary here in Queensland, and I would argue was the most outstanding militant union leaders of her generation. Um, I interviewed her and, and she put it to me this way, and I'll just read this, read this quote about her personal transformation, and I think it's indicative of what was happening amongst workers um, and certainly women workers in this period. This is what she had to say. I had been sort of brought up to be tolerant, you know. You don't rock the boat too much. You've got to learn to be tolerant, to be passive and all that, you know. And then from the women's liberation movement, I just learned that you're never going to get change if you're going to be tolerant. If you've got to be totally, you've got to be totally intolerant about things to get change. And she, she learnt that from the women's movement and she took that into her activities in the, in the trade union movement. So I think you did have this groundswell of, um, of social movements and, and youth revolt and this, of course, also was reflected within the labour movement itself from 1968 after the revolt against the penal powers legislation, which basically um, was laws that prevented unions from, from taking um, uh, solidarity actions in support of other workers and so on. And there was a revolt against that in 1968, which m- basically smashed the, uh, smashed the use of that legislation. So there was uh, an increase in class conflict in workplaces and um, an increase in industrial militancy right through the uh, the 70s. So I think this, the telephonist union um, was, was in many respects a product of that generalised groundswell and shift to the left in society. Um, and secondly, those changes created um, a more combative telephone exchange workforce. So it wasn't just the case that the the union became, as an as a institution, became more combative. The workforce had changed. There were, people had different ideas. And as um, uh, um, Joyce Williams pointed out, you know, you went from being someone who was maybe prepared to put up with stuff to 
to someone who just wasn't. And I think that kind of attitudinal shift went through the, the ranks of the telephonists as well. And out of, out of that new kind of workforce emerged new kinds of leaders like Joyce Williams and, and others and Sylvia Hall, who, was the, who became the federal president of the union. And probably the third factor associated with that this, this shift was the incremental corporatisation of telecommunications in Australia which actually began in 1974 and well 73 really the Whitlam government um, um, created a Royal Commission into the Postal Service um, the idea was to modernize it and make it more attuned to the needs of Australian business and so on it was known as the Vernon Royal Commission and um, directly led to recommendations for pretty much the corporatisation of, of the enterprise and the Whitlam government in 1974 accepted those recommendations and a large part of that was to split the postal service away from the telecommunications service so you ended up with the Australia Post uh, or the post office and, um, and Telecom which was the enterprise that, that was um, set up as a government owned business and it, had, it was required um, by statute to generate at least 50% of its investment capital from internal sources. So that led to an increased focus on making surpluses, making profits, which in turn led to a much greater pressure on the workforce and, a, and the introduction of a managerialist approach to industrial relations. And so you've got this combination of things creating um, uh, a storm, to use an appropriate current metaphor, um, where you've got workers who are becoming less inclined to put up with crap and management who are more and more interested in driving workers and uh, improving productivity through the introduction of new technology that displaced workers. So you had an intensification of class uh, conflict in the, in the telephone exchanges and in the wider telephone network and service at this stage. Um, for the telephonist unions, what were the main features of this transformation? So for the union itself, as I've said, um, you had the emergence of a more combative leadership. Um, and one thing that happened at this time was that they actually made the, um, the, the senior elected positions full time. And so up until the mid 70s, these, the senior elected positions of the union um, were part-time positions. Um, so the workers, they, they were still workers in, employed by PMG and they did their union stuff uh, for free on a part-time basis, more or less. Um, by making the positions, the elected positions, um, um, full-time permanent positions, paid positions, um, it gave the union independence, or it gave the officials independence uh, from the from the hierarchy. They they were no longer beholden to PMG or Telecom for for their own employment. So they were. Um, it gave them a level of independence, and that flowed onto the union itself. Um, they also the the leaders of the union that emerged at that point in those years were drawn from the broad ranks of the telephonists. Prior to that, there had been a history of the union being dominated by career-minded um, supervisors. Uh, so you, you had the shift where more rank-and-file on, on the board telephonists uh, began to take an active interest in the union and some of them um, emerged into more senior leadership positions over, over time. So that was another important uh, shift. 
Um, and also, the union itself ideologically became more independent of management. It, it no longer regarded itself as a partner with the PMG or with Telecom in the efficient manager, management of the service. So there was a kind of ideological shift going on here as well. They saw themselves representing the interests of, of workers, of their members, uh, and those interests they began to see as not necessarily um, compatible with the interests of the, of the um, enterprises management. There was also a new emphasis on rank and file organising and mobilisation. So in the 50s and 60s, union business was, business was conducted by senior people having quiet, polite meetings with senior managers. Um, and they would have uh, annual conferences and state conferences and so on like. Um, but the rank and file pretty much weren't involved in that at all. So you had a, a greater emphasis emerge on rank and file organising and, and mobilisation. Union leaders actually began to visit exchanges uh, in the country right through, right through Australia and they, they would listen to telephonists and they would note down their grievances and they would take those grievances up with management and if they didn't get satisfactory outcomes uh, they would begin to organise campaigns and they'd encourage the local members and the local delegates to take responsibility for organising uh, campaigns at the local level which they would support up to a point uh, at, at official level. So there was a much greater emphasis. They created a quite effective delegates structure. They trained uh, their delegates in how to be effective leaders at a local level. Mm -hmm. uh, well, sorry, uh, th th those at home haven't seen, I'm just being blown away here because uh, there's a lot of very, very lot of similarities to um, a, a union that I particularly know and am, am associated with. And, the, you know, uh, getting delegates, that's the, our key focus for this year is uh, uh, in within RAFU. Uh, so a lot of similarities. Uh, this is fantastic. Yeah. So And they, and they educated their, their delegates. So you had um, uh, workers in the telephone exchanges who didn't necessarily know much about industrial relations or how unions worked or even how to go about um, organising or, or having, a, having a negotiation with a boss at a local level. So they provided training and um, out of that there was a whole network of, of delegates who, who developed the confidence and skills to be effective uh, leaders in the, in the workplace. And that, in turn, lifted the morale and the confidence of the of the membership in the local levels as well and the final thing i think that marked out the shift within the union was that there was a greater willingness to respond to more intractable problems with mass campaigns um, including campaigns involving industrial bans and and stoppages and so on that's that's a that's really really amazing um, because uh, that's the uh, it's sounding very, very familiar model, and uh, we're, we're even organising a delegates conference for later on in this year, you know. So, um, yeah, uh, rank and file, well, uh, those that don't know, I was a retail worker, and now I'm an organiser for retail uh, workers. Um, that's, it's, it's, it's a great model uh, for, for unionism. Tell listeners uh, uh, about the, the first ever workplace stoppage in the main telephone exchange in Brisbane. Yeah, this is a great story, um, and, and it's it, it's a, it's about this transformation that's going on. And it was a story told to me by Jean Bowden, who was a delegate at the Edison Exchange in Brisbane at the time. 
Jean was also actually a member of the Communist Party, though she was, she was not really open about her Communist membership in the workplace. Now, when Jean told me this story, she couldn't quite remember what the particular industrial issue was that, uh, that led to this event. Um, so, from my own research, I know it was a stop work meeting on the 24th of March 1980 uh, over a union pay claim. But Jean's memory uh, was very, very clear with respect to what happened that day. So she may not have been so clear on the issue, but she knew very well, she remembered very well um, the details of what transpired. And, um, uh, and I'll, just, I'll just read out um, her, her, the account of, of, of what happened on, on that day. It was the lead-up to the first occasion that the ATPOA members in Brisbane's Addison Exchange were called upon by the union to stop work. Jean Bowden, who was, um, who was a delegate um, in, the, in that particular exchange, she devoted a considerable amount of time explaining the issues and the impending action to the operators in an effort to allay their fears and to build confidence. And remember, these, these were workers who had never taken industrial action in, in the past. On the day, um, one of the very senior managers appeared in the exchange room and accompanied by the woman who was the supervisor in charge, who wasn't a unionist, began threatening the operators prior to their planned walk-off at 1pm. As these two management representatives moved around the room speaking to staff, Joyce Williams, who was the state secretary by that stage, came down, heard about what was going on, came down from the union office and began following these two managers around the, around the, around the room. And after the managers had spoken to the, um, to the workers and moved on to the, to the next group, um, uh, Joyce and um, Jean Bowden, who were following along behind, would then speak to the workers themselves and, urge, and would urge them to disregard the intimidation. And Bowden followed along too, providing, she hoped, leadership by example, because she was a supervisor there, she was also the union delegate, and she was determined to show the other workers there that she wasn't going to be intimidated. So, as well as explaining to them their rights, she was trying to lead by example. Um, as the hour of the stoppage approached, the senior um, um, manager and the other senior managers who had turned up in the meantime, formed a line near the door through which the members would have to pass, so a, a gauntlet. Most supervisors, however, uh, in the exchange, stuck firmly with their fellow unionists on, on the boards um, that was on the exchange. And Bowden told me very vividly what happened at one o'clock, as, uh, as one o'clock tick, ticked over. And all these senior managers were lined up uh, to intimidate the workers <coughs> if, they, if they tended to walk off. And this is, this is Jean's own words. What happened when one o'clock ticked over? I saw them standing up. It was a tremendous feeling. They stood up and they walked out. They got up from their boards and walked out and no one, no one sat at their boards. That was the first big action of that type. And then she, and then she added, after that, we stopped quite easily. <laughs> so once they'd had that breakthrough, and they realised they could do it as a collective, 
they had no problems at all in in future occasions walking off the job yeah absolutely the the feeling of strength and unity and that would give you so much power in the future yeah against this massive intimidation by senior senior management um but that wasn't um that wasn't the um the only or even the worst intimidation that happened in that particular dispute um, at the stop work meeting that the workers went to and also at stop work meetings that were occurring in Western Australia and South Australia at the same time, members voted to ban the recording of the operator surcharge on the charge dockets. So this was a move which Ooh. would give callers discounted long distance, distance calls. Um, uh, so this was a, an industrial ban imposed as part of their campaign for their wage increase. And this was a very militant act mm. in the context of a workforce new to industrial action because it directly affected telecoms revenue and it absolutely infuriated management. So this is similar to the way the bus drivers re uh, went on strike a little while ago where they didn't take let you tap your card. Precisely. So they maintained the service um, but they just didn't charge the full price to the callers so they got discounted long distance calls. Um, <clears throat> but the, the, the man management just went berserk. Um, and I'll read again from the account um, about what happened next. So in Queensland, um, this didn't happen uh, in other states, but in Queensland, here in Brisbane particularly, managers took the operators off the switchboards in small groups to point out the dire consequences of their criminal activities. <laughs> so not, not recording these prices. Staff were informed that dockets would be stockpiled in the exchanges and would need to be repriced when the bans were lifted. Refusal could lead to charges under the Crimes Act. So they were threatening these workers with, uh, with charges under the Crimes Act uh, for, uh, for fraudulently pricing these dockets. In other words, denying the Commonwealth revenue. Now, so for workers without any experience of industrial confrontation, these were very fearful tactics, obviously, and management was confident that the workers would buckle. Joyce Williams, the State Secretary, however, reported to her branch council that despite the barrage of intimidation and misinformation, and I quote her, members remained firm in all centres and strongly opposed any proposal for them to amend the dockets. Um, oh yeah, that's awesome. Mm. Uh, and, and, the, and these threats continued, uh, and the it got to the point where even other branches of the union were demanding that the, the Queenslanders back off. <laughs> um, and, and Joyce Williams, to her great credit, as the, as the leader of the Queensland branch, um, and of, of course to the telephonists themselves who were at the front line, they refused to lift these bans um, until eventually management was, um, was forced to blink. Um, they the 11th hour um, backed off, management backed off and as a result of this campaign the workers won wage increases ranging from 5.7 to 10% which was well above the 4% offered by telecom. Right on. Uh, so it, um, this was for, for many of these workers the first industrial action that they had taken. First of all they had to walk off the job in the face of Im immense intimidation and then they imposed these bans um, which led management to threaten them with um, criminal action and they still stuck to their guns um, and refused to give in until they'd won 
uh, a, a pretty reasonable pay increase. But even then, this is just to show you how much the mood had shifted. It's a sign of how feisty the telephonists had become, that many members were not con content with that outcome. Um, oh, hell yeah. That, that, wasn't, that wasn't good enough. And I just want to quote one of the members, Louise Otway. Um, when I spoke to her about it, she said, I thought we could have got more. <laughs> we settled for 6.3%, uh, which was in her particular area, which isn't much higher than the telecom offer. We are the frontline girls for telecom and we have to put up with quite a bit in here, so we're entitled to more. When you look at telecom's profits, it's obvious that they can afford it. So they might have got a, a pretty good wage increase, but a lot of them were still not not content. So it, it yeah. indicative of, of the level of discontent and the preparedness of these workers to take action in support of their demands. Yeah, it's really cool for them to be able to not just go for what they can, but want more for like, I mean, not just get what they need, but to try and get what they can with the power that they have. That's like really, that's really cool of them. And that's what they realised, you know, yeah. by taking this action, they realised we, we, we can actually achieve things here. Um, so it gave them an enormous confidence. The militant north strikes again. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. They were the standout branch. Um, other branches had supported the bands in the early part, but by the end it was only the Queensland members who were holding the bands. Hmm. So uh, what were the main issues taken up by the telephonists in the 1970s? We've heard about the fight, but what were they fighting for other yeah, than just so pay? 70s and 80s, um, wages, as, as that story reveals, um, workplace surveillance and bullying by management, uh, amenities, the, the state of amenities in the, um, in the buildings where the telephonists worked, health and safety and job security. Um, so they were the main issues. Just to give you a few quick examples, um, the union forced management to stop secretly listening to and recording operators for quality control purposes. So um, managers started listening in, um, mm. particularly for, for new uh, employees. They started listening in to their transactions with the callers. Um, and they would often listen in secretly without uh, alerting the, um, the workers that they were doing it. And this became a major issue um, with, within, the, within the, um, the ranks of the union and, and within the union hierarchy itself. Um, and they took a stand against it. And it's interesting today, you know, whenever you make a call to a company or a, or a government department, you invariably get that message, your call is being recorded for quality assurance purposes. Now, back at, this is the kind of stuff that um, these guys took a stand against um, back, back in, the, in the 1970s and early 80s. They said, no, we're not going to put up with that. Um, and they won. Uh, they, they, they got a ban on any secret recordings of, of people and eventually they, uh, recordings were only allowed for training, or not recordings, but sub listening in on conversations was only allowed for training purposes, uh, for trainees, and then only with their knowledge that they were being listened to as part of their, their training. Hmm. Uh, so they won that. In 1976, Queensland members refused to work Christmas Day unless they were paid the, pu the public holiday rate, uh, and they stuck to their guns right into December until they eventually accepted an offer which gave them double time, a shift of minimum length to allow them to have one main meal with their family, and a requirement 
for only a minimal number on, on the roster for that day. It would have been a big day for tele- telephonists back in the day because everyone's Every- calling their their, mm. their families for Christmas Day. Yep. I remember, you know, like, well, this is, you know, uh, yeah, this would have been the 80s. Yeah, we would have made a trunk. This is where more memories are, ca- are coming <laughs> back. We, every... Um, Every Christmas night, um, every year, we would all, you know, like talking 20 family members would gather around the phone um, to talk to our grandmother in Melbourne. And that was, you know, that was a big hour long, two hour long event, you know. So a massive day of revenue making for for the enterprise, but they originally didn't even want to pay any form of of, um, penalty penalty rates. Uh, So they they won a quite significant little victory there. in September 1981, around 18 months after the 1980 wage victory that I've already mentioned, the union held its first ever coordinated national stoppage, uh, at which over 4,500 telephonists walked off the job and vowed to disrupt Australia's telecommunications system unless their fresh wage demands were met. Uh, a mixture of bans, which most, most of them affected the pricing of calls, again, damaging revenue, but... Um, providing services to customers, a mixture of bans, unannounced rolling stoppages, that was what the Queenslanders were doing, they would just go on strike without telling management and they'd have a <laughs> program of rolling stoppages like that. Awesome. And work to rules were implemented on a branch by branch basis around the country. After initially offering 6.8%, Telecom was forced to settle for a 10.2% wage increase. Um, and union members in, the, in, in ATPOA also took leading national roles in the labour movement around forcing management and governments to recognise and address the the scourge of um, repetitive strain injury, which became a big problem for workers in that period because of the introduction of computer technology that hadn't been designed for humans to use, um, and it affected a lot of telephonists. So they took actually a leading role across the labour movement enforcing governments and employers to recognise that and to address that problem. Yeah, bosses never ever used to um, recognise a repetitive strain injury. And no. That was a dreadful, um, no. dreadful time. Oh, look, look, sorry to keep you moving <laughs> along, but it's so fascinating. We've got other things to, to discuss. Um, and uh, there's a bit of solidarity shown by the union. The telephonists also gave support to other workers. How did that... Now, one of the, the most infamous uh, actions was the, the Seaquib dispute. How, how did uh, they support the, the SAC Seaquib workers? Yeah, so in 1985, of course, there was the, um, the massive Seaquib uh, dispute in Queensland where over a 1,000... Electricity supply workers were, um, or linesmen they were, were, were sacked over, over the issue of um, introduction of contract labour. Um, they got a lot of support from unions around the country, including the Telephonist Union. The union donated $8,000 to support the struggle uh, um, and the sacked workers themselves, which was a fairly large amount in those days. But even more impressively, members banned all telex traffic to and from Queensland cabinet ministers the Seaquip <laughs> officers and the Queensland Electricity Commission. <laughs> That's sensational. <laughs> and un- unofficially, yeah. I've heard that they also disrupted tele- telephone traffic to uh, ministers, uh, Queensland Cabinet ministers' offices. So, yeah, they were, they were providing solidarity both in an open sense and a covert sense during oh, that wow. dispute. That's that's great. Yeah, using your place in the infrastructure of our society to create disruption, that's yep. really incredible. Yep. Fantastic. Oh, I, I like that. Now, 
um, and also, uh, just quickly, um, and with this one, could, these two could probably be, you know, the, the Sequeb distribute. And also, the um, there was a, a, a struggle at the time that was known as Gabba ba- as the Gabba Ban. Could you could you t- quickly tell us about that before we we get into what actually you know happened to the telephonists? Yeah, so um, uh, the 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 Gabba band, Brisbane listeners would uh, probably be familiar with that big ugly concrete block of a high rise building next to the cricket ground over at Wollongabba, sits uh, just across the street next to the German club. Um, that was constructed in the 1970s as the centre of telecommunications in Queensland for telecom and it was designed to house the main manual assistance centre handling national and international trunk traffic for all of Brisbane, Nambour, Southport and Toowoomba. Now one of the, one of the bands um, that the union pioneered initially in New South Wales but most spectacularly took up here in Queensland was to actually black band buildings. Um, so um, the, the union's branch here in Queensland blacklisted that, that um, building over in uh, Wollongabba after it was built and Telecom was keen to have it open and operating. Um, in October 1978, the Queensland branch banned the selection and training of all staff for that centre until various issues were resolved. One of the demands that emerged was for a pay increase for the operators there who, who were going to work there so that they would share in the productivity gains delivered by the new computer technology. Um, and they also wanted that, that, that pay, pay rise as recognition of the new skills that they would need to operate this new computer technology. So in other words, it was about saying, you've got this new technology, we have a right to share in the productivity gains from that new technology. Uh, it doesn't all just go to, to the to, to the the bottom line. Um, and the Queensland branch also used that ban as leverage to claim a 34-hour week for operators across the system. Now, in way back in 1924, uh, telephone um, exchange workers in the major exchange in the capital cities actually won a 34-hour week because of the strain of the job. Uh, so this, when they banned this um, move to the Gabba. Um, they used it as a le- as a lever to get the 34-hour week for all telephonists oh. right across um, the, uh, the the state. Um, so <coughs> it was a very important um, initiative, um, and they won that. Um, that ban again it ended up with in conflict with um, the national executive of, of the union and of the leaderships of other branches of the union. Um, and of course they were under immense pressure from telecom management. They held that ban on the Gabba building from October 1978 to March 1981, almost two and a half years. They refused to move into that building until their um, demands were settled to their satisfaction. And they lifted the ban only after management conceded the, the, the extra allowance that they were claiming and also the universal 34-hour week. Um, and they maintain an intermittent ban on other positions, the, the national uh, traffic positions at the Gabba until 1983. Uh, and that ban was maintained over staffing structures and salaries. So um, two and a half years, uh, they maintained that ban against immense pressure um, and they won. Uh, they, they, they won um, a pay increase 
to share in the productivity gains of the new computer technology and all telephonists across the state um, benefit by getting a, th a 34 hour week right on right on we got so well, i think we could do a whole nother episode <laughs> on this one but uh, finally now we, we knew we were heading towards a, a bit of a sad ending but uh still um automation and its threats to jobs it was the biggest issue of all and would have defeated the telephonists in the end um but uh, how did uh, telephonists uh, fight to save jobs well, I, that was, as you say, the, the core issue. You know, there were fights over wages and health and safety and surveillance and all of those things. But um, the core issue right through this period was employment security. Um, and the, the workers knew that. Uh, they always knew they were up against it in terms of um, the introduction of new technology. There'd been waves of new technology right from the beginning back in the 1880s that had displaced workers. Um, but they knew kind of that this was the end game um, with uh, the automatic systems that were coming in. But they fought incredibly hard. Um, and there were, just briefly, I know we're running out of time, but just briefly, there were three categories, I suppose, of, of campaigns that they, they used. Um, the closure of country exchanges was happening right through the 70s and into the 80s. And um, in, the, in the case of the country exchanges, they, they often ran community-based campaigns. And Telephonists and Gympie became the, the showcase for this model of activity. Um, they heard in 1978 that their exchange was going to be closed down. So they actually stopped work for a day. They shut down the exchange for a day just to make the point to the local community as to how valuable their services were. Mm. And on their strike day, they letterboxed homes throughout Gympie, leafleted every business in the town's long main street. Two members took to radio to, to talk about the issue. They also carried out a ballot of the entire township about whether the exchange should shut or not and got overwhelming support from the community to keep it open. Um, and it forced telecom to actually provide a public defence of their decision to close down the exchange and it provided a platform for the workers to talk about the value of living labour operating the te telecommunication systems as a service to the community um, and so so effective was that campaign in Gympie that the branch here in Queensland actually made a kit a uh, exchange closure campaign kit that they sent to every country exchange in um, Queensland and there were lots of these campaigns um, around. So that was the very much the community-based campaign approach that they, they adopted in the, in the country centres. Um, I've already talked about the, the ban on new buildings. Um, that was pioneered, as I said, in, in Sydney. Um, they, there was a, um, a new building similar to, similar to the Gabba one constructed in Pitt Street in Sydney um, and the branch down in New South Wales um, refused to staff it for other than training purposes until firm commitments were made on staffing requirements and amenities because when they did an ins inspection of the building they realised very quickly that it was designed to accommodate far fewer workers than the old centre so they knew that it was a trap. If they if mm. they shifted into there, they'd end up with fewer jobs. So they banned going there until they got guarantees about uh, uh, job job numbers and so on. Um, so they black banned a building, um, and they subsequently extended that ban to live testing and training purposes. Um, <clears throat> so that that 
that kind of strategy was used and that was very effective because you think about you're being pro you're being proactive you're not waiting till the technology hits you you're saying we will not use this technology uh, until we get certain assurances so that was yeah. a, a very important uh, tactic in getting concessions out of management around job security and so on and thirdly industrial stoppages um, and bans hurting revenue um, the end point really started on the 8th of June 1983. Telecom announced that they were making 2,137 full-time cuts to, to the, te the telephony workforce. Based on Telecom's own figures, the union calculated that the actual figure was over 3,200 jobs, which amounted to 40% of the workforce. Um, the next day in Sydney, um, at least 700 and up to a thousand union members walked off the job and rallied outside Telecom House in protest. And the New South Wales State Secretary at the time, Marilyn Brown, who was at that rally, told me later that senior managers locked the doors uh, as all these angry workers, most of them women, rallied outside. And the senior managers could be seen through the glass, standing <laughs> around looking stunned and speechless. Um, two weeks later, after mass stop work meetings around the country, the members imposed a raft of bans nationwide. Um, and I won't go through all, all of those, but they did force Telecom to the negotiating table. Uh, they did force Telecom to agree to a moratorium on job losses and to, um, to work with the union on what they called a job study to look at ways that the services could be used in, in um, ways that helped the community and also saved some of the jobs of telephonists. And some of the ideas they came up in that job survey, um, that study, um, in a sense anticipated, prefigured the directory assistance roles that um, have emerged subsequently in the digital era where you know people could ring up and get information about something. Um, in the end, um, they didn't succeed um, by um, they had to. They were forced because of the shrinking size of the union. They were forced to amalgamate, um, and then in 2003, uh, the division d disappeared altogether. So, but just in conclusion, I think that campaign over jobs wasn't a complete failure. It it bought time for the telephonists. They won these moratoriums. It, it bought time. It forced telecom and, and the government to provide support to allow telephonists to transition to other occupations within telecom and in other areas of the public service. It led to much better redundancy packages. It lifted the confidence and skills of an entire group, entire generation of, of workers about their confidence to campaign, to, to stand up for themselves. And it, for the first time, it really placed the social value of labour on the national agenda. The whole issue of what these services were for was placed on the agenda by these campaigns. And that's an important legacy as well. Right on. Well, we better go. Yeah, we we are at 11.59. The show is about to end. So I was um, going to go, uh, did you see Peter Dutton put out that GoFundMe page for, 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 um, to, to collect money for people flooded? What, uh, <laughs> what a scallywag. Yeah. Uh, oh, for another scallywag, the economics reference in Korean to underlawful, unlawful underpayment of employees heard that university casual staff were offered uh, gift cards as payment instead of getting actually paid. 
Um, so, like, there's no specific university we can put as a scallywag here, but this is something that has happened, and all, we can all, say all vice chancellors are scallywags, in my yeah. personal opinion. And um, that story was sent in to us by Tone on our Facebook page. Oh, thank you so much, Tone. Sorry we didn't have time for it. <laughs> Apologies in advance to the Zedlines crew for uh, chewing into their time, but we just had such a, a fantastic <laughs> uh, story to, that we presented today. Thank you once again for coming on, Jeff. That was fantastic so you're welcome and th- sorry for going over time no no, yeah, no, no. That's, that's great it's, it's my role to, to you know like, uh, but uh yeah we will um we will wrap that up there and um thank you to to the listener for listening in and uh stick around for zedlines they're, they're, they're coming up and uh we will uh, see you next tuesday here on workers power on four triple z